guess what? We're live. This is the GM advice. Two expert GMs, the best ones mm -hmm. ever. Uh, you've read about us in uh, GM, the GM trade magazines. Ooh, GM GQ. GM enthusiasts. <laughs> GM fancy. That's what it would be. Oh, yeah. There we go. It's also great cat food. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, but we're wrong in many, many ways and calibers. But in particular, we're wrong about this is a DM advice because we played Dungeons and Dragons their trademark term do you think there would be legal problems if like in dungeon world they said call the person the dungeon master yeah i think it's a registered like they can't which huh. is wild to me yeah that is interesting i mean i guess it was like when uh gygax first started it and he was calling them hobbits instead of halflings and then yeah. token's son was like i will sue you about that yeah maybe that's where they got the idea it's like wait we can get lawyers involved in this game yeah this is great anyway now that I've derailed this into a conversation <laughs> about uh, intellectual property. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we just we just finished up uh, the game Doist, the Dragon of Ice Fire Peak, the uh, Essentials Kit, the D&D Essentials Kit. I got it for like not even the most recent Christmas, but the Christmas before, I believe. And then when the pandemic hit, I was like, hey, you know what would be fun? A real quick uh, module of D&D games. I've never ran D&D 5th edition. Although I started in the, the second edition, I guess. Did you actually start in D&D too, or did you start elsewhere? Yes, I did start in D&D, um, but it was my 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 buddy Mike Zabriskie's older brother, Robert, uh, who introduced us to the game, and he was playing it, but he did not really, either didn't really know the rules, which I think is the situation, <laughs> or he didn't care or didn't trust that we would understand them. So it was like, a lot of the mechanics didn't make much sense. It was just like, roll a, this crazy number of dice. And, he'd, and he would just be like, oh, yeah, you hit him. <laughs> it was a lot of that stuff. Yeah, that sounds about right. It was a lot of fun. Do you remember your first character? He was a evil dwarf. Oh, evil dwarf nice. warrior. Um, I forget what his name was. It was probably something really stupid. <laughs> yeah, my, my first was. Uh... So my uncle was DMing. And he, he was like, what, what kind of character, what do you want to do? And uh, I was like, oh, I, being a dragon would be fun. And at that point, AD&D, like it was, I think near the end of the second edition, right before third edition started. So there's already like a million books about covering everything, including, oh, if your players want to be dragons, here, here you go. So my first one was a little baby silver dragon is my hmm. uh, first memory of D&D, I think. But yeah, this fifth edition, pretty interesting. They've made a lot of changes. I think we've played all of the editions since then. Yeah, I think I've played every edition save for first. The weird the weird ones in between a anything before two, because there were like several different versions before second edition. Yeah, like the, the basic and the the various colored boxes. Yeah. All, they all have their following. Don't play D D too often, but this one was pretty fun. But this module is set up really interestingly. It's kind of like a, it's very video game-esque. Like there's a quest board and you go through these different, you can, the player can pick whatever quest they want. I don't think that that's a bad idea. I think that that having that kind of like very basic setup is not a problem. I don't yeah, I thought that's, it was, I don't think that's bad. I thought it was pretty smart. It's kind of, you know, like campy, but if anyone has played a video game before, they kind of understand what they're doing. And I think this game on or this module, I should say online gets a lot of criticism because it there's not a lot of through line of plot or story or anything. 
but I think it, it was enough. Like the dragon is causing weird stuff to happen. Figure that out. So I thought the module was pretty good and we changed a lot of it too, just kind of as we went along. I think the the one I changed the most was the one that uh, you were playing where um, Don John was there, the, the Tower of Storms. I said it in that forest, but it was supposed to be kind of a lighthouse on the coast. There's a crab instead of a badger. That would have been cool too. Yeah. I think that one was uh, maybe a little bit too weird for me, but, and they had that abandoned town Coneyberry, which I thought was awesome. And they didn't do anything with it. So I kind of changed that. But um, in hindsight, that weird, I don't know, like a New England coastal lighthouse thing would have been pretty fun too. But it seems like that gets us to the first topic that you wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess this is our second big campaign after L5R, which we also played from a module. Having learned all of the advice that we gave last time, uh, yeah, of course we did. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> how is um, running from a module like? How do you do it? I know lots of GMs just like swear against it. But what do you? Where do you fall on that line? I, I think as as a person running a game as a GM, you have to balance out a few things. One is I really enjoy coming up with a premise or with an idea or with a in the past when I wanted these to run these long campaigns with like world building and that kind of stuff, but like creating the setting, creating the premise, the game idea. And so I really enjoyed that. So in some ways modules, they take that away because someone's already done that for you. But at the same time, that's also the advantage. Someone's already done that for you. And they've done a lot of the heavy lifting for like the tedious shit too. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you don't have to make, well, now with in the age of the internet, this is far, far easier than it used to be. But, um, you know, they've already got stuff of like, there's supposed to be this many orcs in the building. Here's this person. Here's the kind of skills that they would have and the kind of stats that they would have. So like a lot of that more tedious stuff of what you'd have to look up to build NPCs that's already there. If you think the premise that they have the idea is cool to the module, like I, I've talked about the Ryokawari game, how I thought that was amazing. I thought that was so brilliant. And I, I wanted to do that so badly. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it can be a lot of fun and you're going to have to change stuff anyway. So to say like, Oh, you're not as creative or you're not as, good at running these games if you use that i don't think that that's the case maybe you just don't have the time to sit there and create all this stuff from scratch absolutely and th this one was pretty interesting because it was the first well in a, a very long time i think the first module that i ran and ran the same system that it was written for oh yeah that's true because we've run other stuff but you changed the system yeah, that like is very true. Great example of that. Yeah, made for the original L5R, and we did the the Power by the Apocalypse kind of drift of it. But yeah, I think maybe because of that, I maybe psychologically was trying to skew as close to the module as possible, maybe more than I would have if I changed the system. Which I'm not quite sure if that's a good or bad thing. Who knows? It is very interesting to doing it for an audience, and this is one of the. Uh, 
well, it says on all of the books, like the world's most popular role-playing game on all the D&D books. And this is one of the most popular modules for it being the, the essentials, you know, like kind of the for beginners kind of game there. I was in a few uh, Facebook groups um, specifically for people running this game and like any other situation, there'd be no possible way that I could have done that. Like any of the other modules that we've ever run or done. Uh, and most of the systems we run were these indie games. There's no opportunity for us to kind of talk to other people running it and get advice and things. So that was, that was an interesting uh, benefit of that, I guess. It was interesting that you stayed so close to it and you followed the rules so specifically. I'm, I'm sure there were times where you bent them or skewed them a little bit or changed them up. But uh, I know later on you used that fourth edition, what was it called, skill challenge? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but I know for the most part, Dungeons and Dragons and the kind of much more crunchy game type, I'm going to out you, get ready. <laughs> your parents are never going to talk to you again. Now the, um, the, like, I know that those kind of crunchier games are not really usually your jive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was surprised when you stuck to, when you chose that and you stuck to it so closely, like that surprised me a little bit, um, of rather than be like, okay, well let's either fudge this a little more to move through it more quickly or even just uh, we're going to run this module and switch it over to Dungeon World. And I think I had said that, like, you know, maybe that's a possibility if you want to. Yeah, I definitely toyed with that uh, it, mentally, at least changing it just to Dungeon World, kind of the easy situation. But um, yeah, I, and I think when you came in, we had since, you know, it was we're still at our houses at that point. I switched to Roll20 from like actual tabletop. So roll 20, like the virtual tabletop kind of thing that figures out all the, the math for you. So I think once I switched over to using roll 20, I followed the rules even more than I was like the games before that partially just cause I am not good at math. I was following the rules maybe more loosely. Yeah. I definitely did even before roll 20 kind of follow the rules to the T I guess. So it was interesting. And I'm sure anyone listening who's like a D&D expert was, can point out maybe every episode, five or six mess ups I did, even with Roll20, I bet. It was uh, definitely a change. It was a challenge, I guess. Another challenge here was that uh, it was Marisa's first uh, really long kind of game. She's kind of a definitely a, a new person to RPGs. And this was her first time playing D&D at all, like any edition. We kind of roped her into a few uh, shorter games here and there. I guess Demi Humans was the most maybe intense one that we did a while ago. But yeah, have you played, I know you, like your cousins and stuff, maybe you've played some or ran some games for people that are really new to RPGs in general. And it's kind of a different animal, right? I don't know if I can give a great amount of uh, tips, but... Do you have any that come to mind? Well, I think that Marisa and Eduardo actually gave the the good advice in the in the last episode, uh, in the debrief, which was that I think that was one of the areas where it being a one-on-one -on -one game um, kind of stumbled a little bit, was that since she was new to some of this stuff and she was, uh, she's played role-playing games before, but none anywhere near this kind of 
this kind of crunchy and kind of rules oriented and this detailed and this long. And so having all the pressure be on her kind of as the, not all the pressure, but having all of the pressure in regard to players be on her as the only player that was kind of tough. I think if there had been one or two other people, she could have either followed their lead and kind of gone along with them and seen what they were doing and then eventually kind of said, oh, okay, well, now I want to do this. I want to do another thing. So I think first time for first-time folks would be a pretty tough one to do as a one-on-one thing. I also think that for first-time people, the social aspect is, for everyone, the social aspect is important. Like you're doing this as a game or as, as a thing to have fun. Um, since we're also doing it to like produce something out of it, that becomes a little bit of a different dynamic. And um, if you're playing with people who have not played before, that social element and this is fun, this is a game, uh, we're enjoying this, really helps to make sure to get them back into doing this stuff. If it's if it's just all on you and you're not sure what to do and you're the only one, that becomes a very different feel. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, just the one-on-one thing was uh, pretty hard in general. And then I feel like I said all this during the debrief too, but just the, uh, I think the rules maybe uh, for the sidekicks and things aren't like uh, great so far. They might need some refinement or maybe it was just how we were playing it. That was a, that was the thing that I think put more pressure at times, more pressure on her, because then mm-hmm. if there were points where you're asking her, okay, you know, you're fairly new at this to play your character. Also, what do these two other characters do? Then that's like, oh, okay, well, shit. Well, my my classwork just got tripled, and that could become tough. I think at a table where you had other people and people could pitch in ideas and that kind of stuff and decide as a table what those sidekicks should do, that would become way, way easier. And then in addition to having the other PCs that she could kind of, or the new player could model their play off of, they would also have then the way the other players were pushing the sidekicks to play as like, oh, okay, that's the kind of stuff I can do. That's the kind of things I can ask about, the kind of things I can try and could be a little bit easier to get into the groove of it. I feel like there was kind of a learning curve that being on her own, it it seemed to be more difficult. And if there were more people at the table, it would have maybe been a little easier. Yeah, for sure. And in hindsight, I did did a really poor uh, progression there because I think when we were playing at the table by, by the end of it, when Don John came in, um, I was like, yeah, she's, she's kind of got the, uh, the idea of how this game works. I'll let her start taking over for the, uh, the two sidekicks or maybe just one or something. And then she kind of got that a little bit. Maybe it was just the session, like the episode or two right before Don John came. And then when Don John came, I was like, all right, yeah, keep using these sidekicks. But in hindsight, I realized, Oh, I also had her, now figure out all of how roll 20 works and all of how this different whole system, you know, does things. So yeah, <laughs> it was a uh, many things to master all at once, I think. But yeah, I think for seasoned players, like adding the sidekicks in 
um, would be easier, I guess. I, I think they're just supposed to be kind of a, just like a mechanical bonus sort of. Yeah. I feel that that could be, that could be the case there of if you're playing this game with either just one other, with one player or with maybe just two, that really they're just an aspect to balance things out. So the module doesn't have to be adjusted too much. Mm -hmm. Because normally like in the split the party kind of issue, if you just have one character going around on an adventure, they can't deal with stuff that's supposed to be meant for a party to go into this dungeon. So where if it's supposed to be three to five PCs and they're on their own, theoretically, they're not going to be able to handle this unless you make them higher level than need be, which I guess is a quick fix. Unless you're going to then adjust the module a whole bunch, which you could. Um, but in these crunchier games, it's more difficult. Perhaps the situation should be that you do have those sidekicks. In that case, I don't think the way you did it was that bad. Uh, but for a new player, I think it might have just been a lot. I think everyone's sort of heard the advice that the, the DMPC, you know, like essentially what the sidekicks are, you know, mm -hmm. like adding your own PC to the party is like the worst thing you can do. And I think in the actual module, they kind of have a paragraph or two that kind of explains that, like, make sure you're treating the uh, actual player as the boss and, you know, not overstepping, taking the lead role in anything. That's always kind of a, an awful thing that first time GMs or when we were teenagers, we could fall into that trap a lot. I feel I definitely did that before when I was a, a wee teenager running these games. Yeah, Matt Colville had some stuff to say about that, which was like, you know, if you're trying to make sure that you're, if what you're doing is that you'd want to play this game and this is the character you'd want to play in this game, that's a bad plan. Like, find somebody to run that game or that type of game and play that character. Uh, don't put them into the party, especially if what they're going to do is steal focus and steal the show from the actual PCs, like they're supposed to be the heroes. They're supposed to be the stars of the show. I can remember times where uh, when we were younger, Carl and Lee and I would play some kind of game and there would be one of us would, whoever was running it uh, would have a character who very clearly was supposed to be like the coolest, the coolest dude and around. <laughs> and it was very clear that they're just doing all this awesome stuff. And everybody else, meanwhile, was, struggling through because they're using the regular mechanical system and all this crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think I was just so gun shy of that happening, like trying to be very caref careful about that. I think I might have uh, overcompensated a little bit because one of the criticisms that Marisa told me was the two sidekicks were just like so boring. They never really had any strong opinions was my strategy going into it was Shanjan and uh, Inverna would always give kind of opposite advice no matter what that she asked them you know inverno was kind of like the the take charge more violent one like impulsive i guess and shanjan was more of the careful kind of a i don't know empathic one perhaps so i use that to just everything every time she would ever ask them anything i would just say uh oh i don't know this sounds dangerous maybe we should think about it some more maybe maybe that's not the best strategy who knows where and then that would be Shanjan, and then Inverno would be like, "No, let's do it! Like, let's kill them all. That'd be great." But you know, with a southern accent. 
Uh, I think that that's fine. I think that that's a good idea. My suggestion would be if you're going to do that, though, like that relationship gets strained, like among actual people. If one person is always suggesting to go left and the other person's always suggesting to go right, you're letting your third friend decide which way you're letting your third friend be the tiebreaker all the time. Eventually, what's up? The baby bear. Yeah. You're eventually you're going to be in a situation where, especially if one person's listened to more than the other person, like that affects the social dynamic. So depending on like how intricate you want the social relationship to be between these characters, you know, people get jealous when one person chooses the other person over them. People get annoyed. People get bothered. Uh, and so playing that stuff up, I think, could work out. I I think the idea that you had was pretty good. Eventually, Inverna ended up leaving briefly mm-hmm. um, because of decisions that they made. And I think that that was a good move of she just says, you know, I can't. You've you've made a decision that I can't accept. I'm I'm out of here. And I thought that that was good. Um, something I've used those kind of, I guess DMPC characters or just NPCs that are like with the group or with the party to do, is to just all play devil's advocate pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think a shitty version of that is literally the person just saying whatever the opposite of what they want to do is. Um, a better version of that that you could do is, uh, like that person has their convictions. So especially if they're an Inverna type character and Shanjan is suggesting like, no, we should work with these orcs. We should blah, blah, blah. And Inverna's like, like, no, 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 these orcs are bad. We, we can't work with them. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta fight them right here. If Marisa's character, if Serafina was to say like, yeah, we should fight them. Then Inverna should to kick that up should step step it up further of like no we got to kill all these guys like yeah kind of like that kind of deal of like like okay to push it to make it like all the like the deci- each decision means that there's going to be some kind of drama here in one way or another i think that that's probably the the way to go and so then it becomes narratively and given that dnd is often so tactical or mechanical could become a mechanical thing of like, Oh, if you guys are going to fight, I'm, I don't want to fight these people. I'll heal you. I'm not raising a finger against these folks. Like I'll go in and heal you, but I'm not doing that. I'm not fighting anybody like kind of a deal. Like that could be something where this person basically says like, Hey, the tactical advantage of having me here is now going to be changed because I'm not going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good suggestion you know, the advice that I always give is make player choices matter really hard and yeah, having them, the two sidekicks be too, I guess, uh, yeah, like too weak, like their relationship to Serafina was always going to be there. Even when one of them left, it was, I always had in the back of my mind, Oh, she'll come back pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, a, a great up, a great thing with sidekicks that you can do is you can remind peace. You can remind the players of stuff in game. And so if they're really missing out on something, if they're really forgetting something that you're like, uh, how are you misreading this situation? You can have them say like, Oh, you know, I, I thought that this was what was going on. Oh yeah. That, that's a really good point. I, I had been using that too. And that's a really good, um, I think just NPCs in general, but especially when you have the, the 
sidekick there for the whole time. That's a really great way to use NPCs. Just like, hmm, I don't think I explained this well enough originally, but this NPC gets it. Yeah. <laughs> They'll let you know. I think if it's the kind of obvious thing that the player just forgot um, and it doesn't end and them not knowing it cheapens things. Um, oh, you forgot that over and over and over again that they mentioned that uh, all the snakes are poisonous <laughs> and the person's like, whatever, they're just little snakes. You should tell them like you don't need an NPC to do that. You don't need someone to be like, you know, indie asps, very dangerous. <laughs> you don't need that to happen. Um, you can just say like, oh, you look at those snakes and yeah, they're, they're poisonous. Like the, the second you, the second you look at them or there's a sign on the wall that says poisonous snakes. <laughs> so, um, but having the NPCs there helps it. It can complicate stuff too, because if you present the NPC as always having a very specific point of view, a very specific bias about things, when they make that point, are they trusted by the player because, you know, this person's been, they're viewed as a coward or something like that. So when the John Reese davies character says, you know, Asp's very dangerous, does Indiana Jones believe him or does he just think like, oh, there's random snakes in there? Yeah, it is, it is I guess, important to, I guess, any NPC really to, to make sure that they're uh, fallible or like unreliable. Yeah, th th that they have a bias of one kind or another. Like they have a point of view and they're presenting the point of view they have. Yeah, because I think it's especially, you know, uh, or not especially, but sometimes it's a, uh, it's very easy to be like, Oh, the, well, the GM or the DM is um, saying this, therefore it must be right. Even though they're saying it through, you know, one of these NPCs, I think the, uh, the tendency is to kind of take that as hard facts, which it's always good to remind them. Oh, not really. Absolutely. Um, I think the mechanical way to deal with those sidekicks uh, again was fine. The problem was since you had only one player uh, that became more difficult when you had a second player, when either myself or Eduardo was in the game, it became easier, I think for it to do because then Marisa only had to deal with the one person. What are they doing? And then the other person was being dealt with by myself or Eduardo respectively. And it was a little bit, the, the crunchiness of it was lessened where there were fewer of those kind of mechanical decisions that had to be made. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think in less crunchy games and less mechanical, mechanically driven games or tactically driven games, those characters are a ton of fun um, of like, all right, tell us, play this other character for a minute, that kind of deal. Um, we're really just, you know, okay, you're the shopkeep. Tell us about this shopkeep, make a crazy character that we're not going to have to really deal with too much. Uh, what's their, what's their whole, what's their whole deal. And that's a ton of fun. The, when you don't have to deal with the, when you don't have to deal with those mechanics, that stuff becomes just an opportunity to kind of go nuts. And that's yeah. a good time. It was very interesting uh, coming from, not mostly, but usually playing um, Powered by the Apocalypse games, where usually the NPCs are, how they word it, just like uh, they always have a target on them or something. So they can die at any point is usually like a big, I don't know, facet of all of those games. And this one in particular, I think at some point early on, I asked Marisa, like, oh, these NPCs could like die if they get to zero hit points. That's that's okay. Would you be 
just wanted to test the waters. Would it be okay if they died or anything? And she's like, no, that would be awful. I do not want them to die. So I kind of gave them the same bonuses that a, a regular player in D&D would have, but the death saves and all that, which is, it makes it very hard for anyone to die in D&D. Now that I've learned some of the rules for how that actually works, it's, it is really tough. Like you have to yeah. really walk into a situation that you were wildly, wildly outclassed for. Yeah. Every round you get a 50% chance of getting a, a bad mark and then you need three bad marks before you die. So at the minimum you have a, you know, three rounds for someone to come over and heal you mm-hmm. before you actually die. Whereas, you know, in apocalypse world, it's like, well, uh, Bing Bong came up behind you and shot you in the head. They're dead now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, another thing you kept trying to uh, to suggest is, hey, David, make those uh, make one of those NPCs uh, betray her. That'd be really fun. That'd be a good twist. I was like, yeah, I feel that'd be even worse than killing them, though. But <laughs> yeah, I'm Which, I'm a, I, I'm a fan of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, I don't think that was a bad dis- or a bad uh, suggestion, but I was like, uh, I think for this game, I. I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, the the person I feel it was most realistic for with that was Snook. And just that idea that like, oh, Snook is is turned by uh, this dragon. And so you could say like, oh, it's just the effect of the dragon. It's just dragon puberty that's yeah. turned turned on him. And he's become a wild, raging, hormonal, hormonal monster. <laughs> yeah, I was planting a lot of uh, seeds for that, too, um, where he was like changing into a like a white dragon just being in proximity. But uh, yeah, at some point I asked Marisa, I was like, oh, these children, the, the fantastic, fantastic Fandelvers, which is your favorite? And she's like, oh, Snoop definitely is my number one. I'm like, are you that's kidding funny. me? That's, that's it. it sucks. <laughs> I guess he's not gonna, I think at the, the very, you know, the climax, I think I had him just like muttering gibberish, like in a trance or something. I think that speaks to um, having NPCs stand out. And so just the fact that that character was so different, not only was it like a whole other race or species of creature in that game, but just that it was a like Pokemon style and just was <laughs> so weird. Um, it really stood out from the other kids. And I think that speaks to something. Like if you want characters to be memorable, they have to either really have a connection with other people or be memorable. Like they have to be unique enough in some kind of way that people remember like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll remember this weird gremlin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So D and D wasn't our total favorite. <laughs> Might not be a surprise, but um, I think it was pretty fun to be honest. I would probably run it again with, with definitely more than one person. I think I have this the Stranger Things set or box thing too module that one day I'm going to play, I think. But um, yeah, we've played a bunch of just like uh, fantasy alternatives, I think. What, I mean, we've done a trophy very recently. We've done Dungeon World so many times. Do you have any in particular that you uh, particularly like? I mean, if you're trying to do this D&D style game, I feel Dungeon World is the way to go. It's got enough it's got enough mechanical stuff that you can you can really replicate 
a lot of that without all of the math and all of the little miniatures and that kind of thing. Like you can get a lot out of it while it is also a little bit more narrow, not a little bit, it's more story gamey, a little bit more narratively inclined than mechanical. And just it's, it is a thinner set of rules that you have to learn. Um, certainly as a player, there's, I think a different kind of curve to it in regard to being a GM. Like, I think that's tough to, to kind of wrap your head around at times. And I've always struggled with it myself and all the apocalypse world games of like a lot of the GM moves and what you can do. Um, other systems that could be fun to use for this. You'd have to heavily modify it, but it would be interesting to see a masks version of this as the like, we're the young adventurers from adventuring school. We're going into the dungeon for the first time. Thanks, Earl. What's his name? Earl Minster. Elminster, yeah. Elminster. Thanks, Elminster. We've we're we're on our. It's our freshman year of d dungeon adventure school, mm -hmm. and um, like all the characters are trying to make their way through this and get this stuff done and be these heroes. And uh, they're dealing with their identities of, am I really a, a, a strong fighter? I think that could, I think that could work pretty, pretty well, but it would require, I'm suggesting a system that to my knowledge doesn't exist and saying, Hey, that'd be good. So go out there and do that thing. I'll, I'll be on board. Yeah. I think we did something similar to that like years and years ago with D and D, right? Yes. Yeah. We, we, we used either third or fourth edition to do it. Yeah, I want to say it was, it was fourth edition. It was, it was quite a while ago. It was fun. I really enjoyed that game. But yeah, uh, masks masks would be interesting. I know they're making like an avatar one. Maybe you could. That's kind of a fantasy. Yeah, that's for sure fantasy. That yeah, could work. You, could, you could turn that into something. Yeah, I think a trophy gold I haven't played yet. We did that trophy dark one that's mm -hmm. supposed to be like a one shot and trophy gold is kind of the uh, the campaign version of it. I'm really interested to try that one out maybe as a you know one of these modules i know uh i want to give credit to a uh, fear of a black dragon the podcast where just their whole thing is just take a old like very old you know like from the 70s and 80s uh modules and put them in different you know games they started with a lot of dungeon world ones and now they usually do trophy gold ones so if you have a, a really uh you know, classic module somewhere you want to try out. That might be a good podcast to hunt down. Um, there's also that fellowship game, which is a, another uh, Powered by the Apocalypse that's kind of based on um, somewhere between Avatar and Lord of the Rings. I think it, it skews Lord of the Rings. It's like a bunch of people of very diverse backgrounds going against, uh, you know, some sort of evil overlord kind of thing. But that's that's kind of high fantasy built into it. I'm trying to think of ones that we've we've tried in particular. Oh, World of Dungeons is kind of the uh, the even more stripped down Dungeon World game. That's also the the system that that action figure one is that you that action figure game uses. Storm Riders. Yes, I always forget the name of Storm Riders, but yeah, that's World of Dungeons. That one's really good. Especially, I think Dungeon World and that um, World of Dungeons are really good for beginners. I think even better than 
D&D in particular, even though 5th edition is, everyone touts it as being the uh, the most beginner-friendly version of D&D ever, which I, I'm not going to, I don't disagree with, but I think Dungeon World and World of Dungeons are way better for beginners. I think Eduardo had some good advice for players, which maybe as like a, a dungeon master or a GM, it might be good to encourage a person to do this, which is like, if they're newer to something, encourage them to play a class or a type or a school or whatever it is that is a little bit easier. If it's your first time doing some of this stuff, maybe, maybe just go with fighter. And uh, because that's going to be fairly simple. I'm not 100% positive of 4th edition. I'm sorry, of 5th edition. I know 4th edition had a bunch of extra stuff where it's like almost everyone's a wizard of some kind or another. <laughs> right. But, you know, if you're starting off this game and you're like, I want to be a wizard. Okay, well, here's all these rule, all these spells with kind of these different things that are exceptions to this and that. And they do these other things. That becomes tough if you're a person who has all these additional abilities or things you got to factor in. If you, if you're, if you're a hammer, like you know how to solve problems. Yeah. And uh, as that might not be the world's most interesting thing, but maybe an option that you could utilize would be, you know, we switch this character out for one of these. As you get more comfortable with this game, we switch that character out for one of the sidekicks. And so now like oh, that yeah. character becomes one of the sidekicks that's going around with you and you play a sidekick that you think is kind of more interesting. You wanted to be this, this druid from out of the woods and that kind of stuff. And there's more rules that you have to follow with that, but that's an option. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I always love those legacy type characters like the, uh, you know, originally in D and D they had the henchman that would follow you around. Mm -hmm. And then the idea was when you're, main character died, which was way easier at that point. Yeah. It would just be your henchman. And also yeah. just the D and D has, you know, multi-classing too. So if you take a couple classes as a, or levels as a fighter, and then you decide, you know what? Sorcerer sounds fun. I should have yeah. kind of realized that in hindsight too. Cause Marisa, I think for her third level, she's like, you know what? I want to be a fighter. She, so she multi-class in the fighter and then, after that, I think she only got one or two more levels and they she went back to Bard after that. So I was like, oh, maybe she is kind of trying to tell me uh, all this spellcasting. Kind of difficult. And yeah, I feel that was like Eduardo said, and you you reiterated it, the, uh, the caster stuff in D&D is always like the, the weirdest thing, like the spell slots and everything is always, I feel needlessly complex. Yeah, I don't know completely, but I'd imagine it's maybe gotten better. Maybe it hasn't, but I know with some games, it's a real pain in the butt, whether it's like, oh, this requires spell components that you have to use. You have a certain number of spell slots. You have to change up your spell book each day. In L5R, one of the things was the idea that like you have to have these scrolls. Oh, so you have yeah. Have specific scrolls for all of this stuff. So then... Um, if you don't have access to your scrolls, it's like you've been disarmed in some kind of way, unless you expend a certain number of experience points to memorize the scrolls. And then uh, the number of the number of spells you could cast is like so limited. It was it was always tough where it's like yeah. we're playing one game 
And within this game is this other game that kind of orbits part of it that is just for this magic stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was always it was always a little complicated. And so I'd say as a, a person, if you're going to be running a game, maybe steering folks away from that early on would be a good idea where like, you know, maybe we'll keep you as a character is a little bit easier to manage. Yeah. And uh, I think the the main selling point for Marisa was that a bard can sing and she wanted to sing in them. But in hindsight, I could have, you know, steered her or maybe warned her a little better. Like bards are kind of complicated of all the classes you could pick. You could be a fighter that sings a lot. Doesn't, yeah. You don't have to cast to spells through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there any other final things you, you learned from this? Uh. I would just say to go back to the very first thing about what to change, what you can change or shouldn't change. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to change things to make sure that it matters to the characters and players. And so if your characters or players seem to be really interested in some aspect, flesh that out, have that become more important. Um if they're much more interested in like the temples or the gods or that kind of stuff, like, all right, well now these characters are going to come around a lot more. Um, And maybe if they're not key to this, maybe now they become key. Maybe they're the person who shows up and asks the player to go on this quest. Maybe it's not finding a thing that's important to the mayor of the town, but it's important to high priest elder shanks or whatever (laughs) the name of that person is. And so, that way you kind of you rope them in a little bit more by playing to their interests. I ran into a problem with uh, uh, the character Lean Meat, the gambler, was supposed to be presented as somebody who didn't, he was doing illegal stuff pretty regularly, and he was somebody who could maybe be like shaken down for information, but he wasn't interested in any of that stuff. He was just like associated with it. Um, I ended up playing him very differently because when you guys went and sought him out, I was like, "Uh, well, having him be so disinterested won't appeal to most of you guys. Like you're coming here trying to investigate, trying to get like some kind of relationship with the underworld. And you know what? Maybe this guy could be it. He's a character with these connections, but he's not so like scary or frightening or terrible that you wouldn't want to work with him. So I thought that that was, I thought that was the right way to go later on. I know that petered out in a way that you were not happy with. Um, But uh, I thought like playing him up that way was a good idea. Yeah. That's a really good suggestion. Yeah. Very luckily Risa's kind of backstory that you pick when you're a, when you start your D and D was, it was a soldier. And I think one of the options was, Oh, there's some terrible creature you ran into that still haunts your dreams and stuff. And I was like, Oh, this random war that you were in, there was white dragons there. And that kind of was a good kind of a, like through line that kept coming up where she's, she had to see these white dragons in this big war she was in before. And now she's kind of uh, hunting this white dragon in the, her present, which is pretty interesting. And, uh, Oh, another thing was, uh, she was, she really loved those gnomes from Nomengard and that one mm-hmm. thing we did. Um, it was just the one quest, but she was like, those gnomes are so cool. 
crab traptions or whatever crab mechanics something like that crab traptions like, sounds really good i like that yeah <laughs> uh she, she really loved those so i was i kind of made a note and it took way too long i think but uh i eventually was like oh this these gnomes of Nomengard are gonna come to the to Fandolin eventually but i did that way too late I, I wish in hindsight i would have done that you know maybe in the midpoint instead of maybe like the third act either way great suggestion yeah if anyone if any of the players are interested in anything at all definitely circle that highlight it and bring bring it back as much as you can yeah i think i think that's it that's we've we're now experts not only of gming and dming but of dragon device fire peak and dungeon and dragons in general so hopefully we've passed some of our expertise on to to anyone listening yeah hopefully you'll know be a be be a fighter focus on their interests sidekicks are okay but make them extreme skateboard move mm -hmm. <laughs> yep and uh yeah if you have any questions uh ask either of us on the facebook group or whatever where else where else can people ask us things I guess they can email us stuff uh, through the This American Dice email and Squarespace sends that to me. And it's mostly either, hey, uh, you misspelled this thing on the website. <laughs> Here's this software that'll help you catch spelling errors. Or more recently, like things about real estate that I'm like, this is entirely unrelated. You're clearly just emailing whomever you can encounter an email address for. So, yeah, I mean... DM questions, grammar questions, or real estate questions. Let us know. Hot, hot real estate tips. <laughs> well, great. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Excelsior. a trip to Vandalin. We didn't know what or who we would make as a friend. We met a lot of people along the crazy ways. We didn't know that we would fall in love with our friends from Fandolin. Friends from Fandolin. As I ride this little wing baby, I'm reminded of all the things people meant to me. I even saw my cousin, didn't really realize she was here, but looks like we have friends far and near, far and near. The worst part of this awful trip was some terrible things we had to do along the way, but sometimes you have to make Decisions you don't really want to make, but you gotta make them anyway. Sometimes you gotta make 
hard decisions along the way, but they're for the best. We tried our best and we did what we could. We tried to save all we could and we tried to make things good. Remember those people that we met, those kings, yeah, they were really cool, but they were kind of weird, but that's okay. We also met a crab mechanic. Did I want to kill a dragon? Oh, no, no. Did I want to kill anybody? No. But did I really have to do it? Well, you know, sometimes you gotta make decisions. Really hard decisions.